The point is to show us the end, to declare to us confidently the end is a kingdom of God that is secure and firm and cannot but be brought about. And secondly, to give us details along the way that when they happen, affirm our faith. Daniel chapter 7 might be rightly thought as the climax of the entire Old Testament. That might be just a bit of an overreach, but not much. If we were to put together a list of the most important passages of Scripture found in our Bibles, and we were to make that list purposely small in such a way as to have the most important of the important on this list, maybe five passages of our Bibles that would qualify as being the most important passages in Scripture, then there are a number of passages that would be just automatic, no-brainers. Genesis 1-3, through Romans 8, Ephesians 1, John 1, passages such as that. But also, I think that there would be a strong case to be made for Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 is a monumentally important passage of Scripture And it might just be the climax of our entire Old Testaments. So it's my job this morning to open this passage to you and hopefully convince you of such. This morning, what we will endeavor to do is just sort of set the stage. And I'm going to begin looking at the vision that Daniel receives in chapter 7. It's a two-phased vision or a two-scened vision. There is a vision that's on earth and part of it is in heaven. Today we'll just look at the earth part of that. We'll set the stage. We'll talk a little bit about some prophecy and that sort of thing. And then we'll look at the earth portion of that. But before we do that, let's just see for just a moment just what a beautiful picture Daniel chapter 7 is going to bring to us. One of the things that I am impressed about as I study Scripture, the more I study Scripture, the more I'm impressed with just how perfectly it's put together. Obviously, it's put together not by a human brain, but it's put together by the mind of God. And oftentimes this comes through in just the perfection of how it fits together in ways that you don't see until you really get in-depth studying such passages. And Daniel chapter 7 really is one of those passages, the whole book of Daniel, is just one of those examples in which God just really put this together in such a beautiful and such a symmetrical way. So just to kind of set the scene for that, we know that Daniel chapter 7 is going to be the place where we revert back to the Hebrew. Most of the book of Daniel is in Aramaic, which was the international language of the day. In chapter 2, it changes to the Aramaic, and it stays in Aramaic until the end of chapter 7. So Daniel chapter 7 is going to be a, a, a passage of Scripture in which a change is made. And so obviously, there's a big change coming in the fact that we move from the episodes of Daniel's life into the visions that he received. That, that's pretty much obvious for us to see. Now, there was a couple of visions earlier. Chapter 2, chapter 4, there was these visions that Nebuchadnezzar received. But those visions really fit into the episode section because those visions were the context for the threat against Daniel's life and so forth. And so those really, even though they were visions, they fit into the episode section much more. But this, is chapter 7, it changes from the episodes of Daniel's life to the visions that he received. So that's pretty much obvious for us to see on the face of things. But it also changes to the Hebrew at the end of chapter 7. Now you might imagine, though, 
that because it's changing from the episodes of Daniel's life to the visions of Daniel's life, that the change goes to Hebrew at the beginning of chapter 7, but it doesn't. Chapter 7 is still in Aramaic. And so that wonderfully ties together chapter 7, not with chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, but instead it ties it together with chapters 1 through 6. And so what we have is the Aramaic section of Hebrew, which is the section of Hebrew, as we said, was written for this international audience because Aramaic was the international language. We have this Aramaic section of Hebrew that's bookended by these two visions that are the same vision. Chapter 2 was where the Aramaic began. That was with Nebuchadnezzar's vision. It ends with Daniel's vision. And as we're going to see this morning, both of them are visions of the same events told from different perspectives. Daniel's vision is told from the perspective of heaven, where Nebuchadnezzar's vision is told from the perspective of earth. But they're both looking at the same events. So these bookended visions on either end describe for us, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar's vision, which a pagan king received, and he received it as a warning for him to repent and change his ways. Daniel receives the same vision, although this time it's from heaven's perspective, but it's not to a pagan king. Instead, it's to God's servant. And it's not a message of rebuke or warning. Instead, it's a message of encouragement. Now, between these two visions, we can summarize all the episodes that take place in the middle in in this way. One of two ways. Either A, worship the false god or die, or B, stop worshiping the true god or die. Those are the choices presented between the two bookended visions. Stop worshiping the real God or die or worship the false gods or die. Those are your choices. So what a neat little section that God has put together. Now, after this, chapter eight is going to revert to the Hebrew, which is going to be specifically written to God's people. But chapter eight through 12 are going to be expanding upon and fleshing out the vision received in chapter Seven. So chapter 9 is a chapter that's going to encompass Daniel's prayer, another prayer section of Daniel. But everything else from here to the end of the book is going to be about the vision that we're going to talk about today. There's going to be no different type of information. Instead, there's going to be subsequent information and subsequent visions, all of them about the vision that we're going to talk about today. So that sort of sets the scene for Daniel chapter 7. But before we begin looking at the passage itself, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about just prophecy in general, specifically apocryphal, I'm not apocryphal, um, apocalyptic. Those two words mean different things, don't they? Apocalyptic prophecies. Because when we come to our scriptures, the genre of prophecy, you know what genre means? That's just a type of writing. Our, our scriptures have different types of genre or writings in there. There's, there's wisdom writing, there's poetry, there's history books, there's epistles to the church, there's gospels. But when we come to this genre of prophecy, specifically apocalyptic prophecy, I have found consistently this to be true. There is no type of scripture, there's no type of writings in our scripture that is more misunderstood, abused, and misused than apocalyptic prophecies. So you probably are familiar with what we're sort of referencing here, these prophecies that have to do with end times, and how God is revealing things that are going to happen in the end of days, and how sensational those passages can become, and how they can become sensationalized, and then really turned into something that seems to go way beyond what Scripture was actually saying. And then we get into all sorts of timelines and flow charts and different sorts of things, 
And suddenly we have something that looks quite different than what God gave us in his word. So this type of literature in our Bibles, this apocalyptic type of prophecy, is one that lends itself particularly well to a certain type of misunderstanding that leads into a fanciful type of approach or a sensational type of approach to the Scriptures that I believe does not do justice to the Scriptures. So I think all that can be avoided just by simply either reminding ourselves or showing ourselves why we have prophecy in the Scripture, what the point of it is and what the point of it is not, and just a couple of basic, very elementary ways of thinking about not just prophecy, but specifically end times prophecy, just a couple of of things that we can sort of put into our toolbox that we look through, a lens that we look through this type of scripture that can help us to avoid going into types of interpretations or understandings of end times prophecies that get over sensationalized, so to speak. Let's begin just by pointing this out. What is the purpose of prophecy in your scripture? What is the purpose that God puts prophecies in our scripture for? God does not put prophecy in our scripture to tell us what's going to happen. God does not give us prophecies in the scriptures to show us what will happen. Now you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems to go against what I think prophecy is. Because isn't prophecy specifically foretelling events that are to come? Isn't that the whole purpose why prophecy is in the Scriptures, to tell us what is coming? Well, hang on. Stay with me. Let's think through this. God does not give us the Scriptures to tell us what is going to happen. The prophecies aren't there to show us details of, of events that are to come. Rather, prophecy is given to us in the Scriptures to do two things. Number one, to show us the end result, to give us the big picture, to show us where things will end. And number two, to give us details about things that will happen that are impossible for us to understand until they do happen. And once they do happen, they're impossible to not see. That's what prophecy does in the Scripture. It tells us of the outcome of things. It tells us the big picture. And it also gives us details of things that are to come, but those details are specifically given to us by God in such ways that it's impossible for us to know what they are going to be until they happen. And then once they happen, it's impossible to not see them. That is the beauty of prophecy. Now you might say, wait a minute. If I think about the Old Testament prophets, didn't the Old Testament prophets, wouldn't they come around every once in a while and sort of tell the king what was going to happen? Like they would tell the king there's going to be this battle and you're going to win the battle or you're going to lose the battle. Or for example, remember when David was running from King Saul and they told David, don't go to that certain village. They're going to turn you into Saul. Don't go there. So don't we see the prophets telling people, specific people, what will happen and they understand it? Yes, we do. However, let's remember a couple things. Number one, those were Old Testament prophets that were operating within the context of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy is is a nation that's ruled directly by God. And the way that God would rule the nation would be through His prophets. 
There would be a king on the throne and God would direct the king through the prophets. So the prophets would tell the king what God said and the king was supposed to do it. And that's how God ruled the nation of Israel. And so within that context, the king would often receive direct instructions from God by way of the prophet. And sometimes those instructions involve things that would happen. But let's not confuse the role of the Old Testament prophet speaking to the king of a theocracy with the prophet that's speaking to us about end times prophecies that may or may not have happened yet. Those two things are easy to confuse. And if we do confuse them, we begin to see end times prophecy in such a way that we think we should understand what the prophet is telling us is going to happen in the same way that King David understood, don't go to that village because they'll turn you in. And that's, I think, where oftentimes the mistake comes. So the end times prophecies are not given in our scriptures in order to tell us details of what is to come. Instead, they're given in our scriptures to tell us the big picture of what's happening and what to expect in the end and to give us details along the way that are beyond our understanding until they happen. And once they happen, then they're impossible to deny. So let's look at a few examples of this. And once I kind of show you some examples, I think that you'll agree with me that this sort of thing is all over your Bibles. This idea that a prophecy was spoken, it was not understood at the time until the events came to pass, and then people said, oh yeah, I remember. That's what the prophet said. That's what God told us. Okay, so let's take a look at a few examples. First of all, look at John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus is going to speak a prophecy about himself. And that prophecy will, you guessed it, be not understood until it comes about. And then people are going to say, oh yeah, Jesus said that. Now I understand. John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's taken 42 years, or I'm sorry, 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? You see, they don't understand. Why did they not understand Jesus' words? Because he didn't plainly say, kill me and put me in the grave and I'll rise again in three days. If Jesus wanted to tell them this is what's going to happen, he could have just told them instead of using this temple language, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They're like, wait a minute, temple? No, 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 This, this doesn't compute until he was speaking about the temple of his body. And so therefore, when He was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see how that worked? Now, Jesus spoke those words in such a way intentionally to present them with information that they could not understand until it came to pass. And once it came to pass, then the Holy Spirit comes and communicates to the disciples and says, remember, that's what Jesus said and that's what he meant. And it came about. So this sort of thing is prevalent in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. Take a look with me at Luke chapter 24. Here is a passage of Jesus's after Jesus is shortly after he's been raised. And the angel said, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? He would rise. And they remembered his words. So Jesus said to them on at least three occasions, I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise. And what did they fail to do? They failed to understand that. That just did not make sense to them, even though to us it made perfect sense. Why does it make perfect sense to us? 
Because we've seen the fulfillment. And so for us, why, why couldn't you understand disciples? He was telling you he's going to die. We're saying that from the context of having seen it. Not with our eyes, but seen it in the Scriptures and know that that's what happened. When it happened, they too said, oh yes, we remember. That's what he said. And that's what he meant. Or take a look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So this sort of thing happens all throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew is constantly saying, Jesus did this, this happened, and it was to fulfill that. So it's coming into Matthew's mind as he's writing this. Oh yeah, Jesus said that. Or, oh yeah, the prophet said this. So this was fulfilling what the prophet said. So here Matthew is pointing out, how Jesus was this fulfillment of the prophecy. The prophecy was that he would be from Nazareth, from Galilee. He would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be called by God out of Egypt. So think about it for just a minute. Before Jesus was born and before we sort of know his lineage of how he's born in Nazareth, or I mean his his parents lived in Nazareth, they traveled to Bethlehem, but then he's got to flee to, to, to Egypt. Before we know all that, what would we do with those prophecies? Let's just take two of them, for example. The prophecy that he's born in Bethlehem and the prophecy that he's called out of Egypt. Without knowing how his birth and the couple of years after his birth took place, how would we put those together? Well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to be called out of Egypt. I know, I know. His parents are going to be Egyptian residents. They're going to live in Egypt. God's going to call them back home and he'll be born in Bethlehem. That's a pretty decent guess. But you see, without knowing how that happened, we cannot take the prophecies and say, this is what will happen. Now that's precisely, brothers and sisters, what we do when we take end times prophecy and we say, this is how it's going to play out. We're taking prophecies that are specifically given to us in such ways that we cannot know them until they happen, and once they happen, we can't unknow them. Now, the prophecies of end times, again, the point is we are to know how things work out. We are to know, God wants us to know the end. And He also wants us to know these details that along the way don't make sense until we see them happen. And once we see them happen, whenever that happens, then we won't be able to ignore them. Let's take, for example, Acts chapter 2, just a couple more examples, because again, this is so ubiquitous in our scriptures. It's all over the place, this idea that the prophet spoke this, and now that it's happened, I understand it. Acts chapter 2, this is right after Pentecost and the speaking in different tongues and whatnot, and people are misunderstanding this. They're saying, what's going on with these people speaking these languages? Are they drunk? What's going on? But others mocking said, well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, this is to be known to you, and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You see what Peter did? Peter looks around. The Spirit has come and fallen on the church, and now they are proclaiming the gospel in other languages. And Peter says, Joel talked about this. In Joel chapter 2, well, he wouldn't have said chapter 2. Joel talked about this in the Joel scroll. 
He talked about the Spirit falling on people and young men dreaming dreams and having visions. This is what Joel was talking about. And so he stands up and proclaims it. That is the nature of prophecy. Prophecy is given in such a way that we intentionally, by God's intention, are unable to know it by detail until it happens. And when it happens, then it serves as tremendous confirmation for what God declared ahead of time would be. So think about it this way. Does it even make sense that God would want us to know the details about how the end of time will unfold? Does that even make sense? When Jesus Himself said, the Son of Man does or does not know. So why would we be given information that even Jesus said He didn't have? Furthermore, don't the Scriptures teach us repeatedly that we live by faith and not by sight? And so if God were to give details of how His plan will unfold, I would suggest that that's not living by faith. That would be living by metaphorical sight. So it neither makes sense nor does it fit the biblical testimony that the purpose of prophecy is for you to know details about the future. Instead, it fits the biblical testimony that prophecy is given for us to know the end of things, to know the outcome, and then receive confirmation as the details are proven to be something that the God who knows the end from the beginning declared centuries before it happened. Okay? So Daniel chapter 7 is one of the Bible's premier places that we see this apocalyptic prophecy, this end times prophecy. It is one of the places that, if we're not careful, we can get really fanciful about this beast, that you probably are familiar with what the vision is, there's four beasts in it. We can get really fanciful about the beasts and the horns and this and that and what this animal is and what that animal is and all these sorts of things. And we can very easily take this beyond what Scripture intended for us to take it beyond. So in order for us to understand Daniel chapter 7, as God would have us to understand Daniel chapter 7, one thing that we must be aware of is that the meaning of Daniel chapter 7, nor, this is true for any scripture, but the meaning of Daniel chapter 7 cannot be anything other than what it meant to the original recipients. So the meaning of Daniel chapter 7 can't be something that is necessarily intertwined with the revealing of the events that are foretold. Does that make sense? In other words, the vision is going to be this vision, and we'll get to it in just a minute, but this, it's going to be this vision about these four kingdoms. Now, the third kingdom, these are the same four kingdoms from Daniel chapter 2, but, but the third kingdom, for example, is going to be the kingdom of Greece, which arose in something like 334 B.C. We're still in the upper 500s B.C. There was no way that Daniel could know anything about Greece. Or the fourth kingdom is about the kingdom of Rome. There is no way that Daniel could understand Rome. Oh, Daniel understood that there was a final fourth kingdom coming. And he understood that that was going to be a kingdom different from the others. But if you had said to Daniel, oh yeah, that's, that's the Roman Empire. He would have looked at you like he had two heads. What? Roman Empire? What are you talking about? So, the conclusion is the meaning of the passage cannot be wrapped up in the identity of the beasts. 
If it is, then it made no sense to Daniel or to those who Daniel wrote it to. Does that make sense? Scripture can't have a meaning that has to evolve as political events play themselves out. That's a dangerous path to go down. When we start saying Scripture's meaning is revealed as political events play themselves out, that's a very slippery slope that we don't go down. Because we believe the meaning of the Bible is clear and the Bible means for us today the same thing it meant when it was written to its original recipients. So for Daniel and the ones who read Daniel's book first, the meaning has to be something that could be understood without knowing who the third beast is or who the fourth beast is or who the little horn is. Okay, Does that make sense? The point is to show us the end to declare to us confidently the end is a kingdom of God that is secure and firm and cannot but be brought about. And secondly, to give us details along the way that when they happen, affirm our faith. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.